Carmen Cohen is the executive director of Clean Air Task Force since 1996 when it was formed. Armand is directly involved in Clean Air Task Force research and advocacy for decarbonizing global energy systems. Armand also founded and led the Conservation Law Foundation's Energy Project and has published numerous articles on climate change. He is also a board member of the Nuclear Innovation Alliance. Armand Cohen and Clean Air Task Force, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Approximately 9 million people a year are dying from air pollution, and yet we're putting 40 billion tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere each year, which is 100 times quicker than the planet has ever had to deal with. So at Clean Air Task Force, you've carved out this unique role in the environmental and climate movement as a science-driven, solutions-focused, and strategic organization. Can you tell us what the Clean Air Task Force is doing to address these issues, to push for change in policies and technologies? Our general focus is a little bit different in a way from, I think, how many other people approach the problem. We see this fundamentally as a problem of technology. There's human behavior and there's a lot of politics involved. But at the end of the day, the industrial civilization that we've created over 200 years has resulted in an enormous amount of economic growth, at least in parts of the world. And uh, living standards are much higher than they were 200 years ago. But the consequence of that was because all of that wealth and industrialization was built on consumption of fossil fuels, we're now emitting 40 billion tons of carbon a year. And in many parts of the world, a lot of other nasty stuff gets emitted with that, like sulfur dioxide, which creates particulate matter, which impairs human health and leads to the vast majority of those deaths that you spoke of, a, an enormous number of air toxics that have all kinds of health effects, as well as ecological damage. Human beings drove that process with the machines that we use. It's the combustion of coal, oil, and gas in factories and in cars to produce electric power. When electric power came on the scene 120, 130 years ago at mass scale. So we look at it from the standpoint and what we're as an organization trying to do is really fundamentally switch over the technology that we use in society to technology that is high emitting today, 80% of the energy we use on the planet comes from fossil fuels with no scrubbing of carbon. So 80% of our base is from this planet damaging resource. And how do we flip that around to zero so that we have zero emissions, essentially, or near zero, as close as we can get? And to do that within a matter of 30 to 40 years after it's taken 200 years to create the system we have. So you can see the size of that problem just by stating it. Energy is something like 10% of the global economy, so it's not a small sector. It employs tens of millions of people, if not hundreds of millions. It's the basis for many economies in the world, if we look at the Middle East. Their economies are dependent on fossil fuel production. There's a huge political economy around this. So as an organization, what we do is try and create the conditions through technological research and development, through policy, and through changes in business practice to get all those high-emitting machines to be retired or converted to things that are low-emitting. So we work to push renewable energy very hard. We have wind and solar now which is much cheaper than it was 10 or 20 years ago. That didn't happen by accident. It happened because multiple societies, Germany, the US, China even, decided they wanted to move that technology at scale 
So there's a whole process here of change over a period of several decades. CATF sees its role as was catalyzing that change by being able to maximize our opportunities for renewable energy and then figuring out what else we might need. So, for example, we do a lot of work on advanced nuclear because we see it as having other zero carbon energy form that can complement and support the renewable energy, even if we could build out substantial amount of renewable energy, we still might need something to balance in the seasons when we don't have so much wind and sun in different parts of the world. We also have the opportunity to scrub carbon out of fossil fuels. We have the technology that can do that. And then we have advanced renewable energy, things like deep geothermal energy that could complement wind and solar. And so our organizational mission is to push all of that technology out into the world as fast as possible and to get down the costs as fast as possible because not everyone is Germany and not everyone is the United States that can afford to spend an unlimited amount of money on clean energy. People are using fossil fuels because they're cheap. Now, they're not cheap from the standpoint of human health. They cause real damage. But in terms of dollars per unit of energy, they are still by and large, the cheapest energy form. Clean Air Task Force really tries to attack the problem of climate change and air pollution by accelerating clean technology. And so we have more of a technology focus as opposed to use less energy or behavioral stuff. Now, all of those things can really help. And I'm not saying that those aren't part of the solution, but we focus on the technology part. You could say we have the easy part of the problem because we're not really necessarily looking for huge cultural change. We work on the things that could be done more or less within the existing industrial system of the world. And I like that you're quite realistic. I mean, not everyone is going to have those deep behavioral changes or can afford to do that. A lot of our predictions is based on if we can get 100% renewable. I know that we can get there. It's a matter of time. But it's based on countries around the world having energy poverty, continuing at the same rate. And of course, we know that that's just not the case. There's acceleration. And we've seen that with China and we're seeing that with other parts of the world. So how can we fill that gap and make it affordable? Because these renewable energies are expensive, at least initially in the infrastructure. We have to be realistic about how big this problem is and how to solve it. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is kind of the world authority on climate science as well as solutions, they do these studies and they say, well, how would we get to zero emissions by mid-century? And a recent paper came out from a group of researchers in India that pointed out that all of the scenarios that the the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uses to show a pathway to zero, assume that South Asia and Africa remain extremely energy poor. They consume per capita only a very small fraction of what the rich world does. And interestingly, that's in 2050. They predict that's the case. And in fact, in some cases, that people consume less per capita. So one has to ask how realistic that may make the models balance. Maybe the models on paper will work. But what does that mean for people in the developing world? 600 million people in Africa right now have no access to electricity. Several billion more more people around the world have access to electricity, but it's intermittent, very poor quality. And electricity is its basically modern life, right? And then you think about, well, what would be required to just get Nigeria, let's say, up to the level of consumption? So those are the kinds of questions when northern people in the global north say a big part of the answer is using less energy. A lot of people in the global south say, wait a second, we don't have any energy to begin with. So why are you telling us that we can't consume even at a third of your level or a quarter of your level? At the recent conference of the parties, we had an Africa panel. And uh, I think it was the minister from Jamaica said, 
everyone's talking about the energy transition. We need some energy first before we can transition. I think that's the boundary condition on this whole problem. And uh, I think there is a belief among some that just constraining consumption is the answer. And for sure, we have a lot of energy waste. I spent the first 12 years of my career pushing on programs in the United States to retrofit buildings to get them to use less energy. And we accomplished something. But in the end, we maybe reduced electric demand growth from being three or 5% a year to, you know, maybe 4%. It's possible to bend the curve a little bit, but you have to face the reality that there are 9 billion people on the planet, 7 billion of which have very poor energy access. And so how do you square that circle? And that's a lot of what we spend our time thinking about is what are the technologies that are going to be affordable and that can diffuse very rapidly, not just in rich countries, but poor countries as well. And wind and solar are part of that equation. I'd say particularly solar has great potential in remote villages. They're uh, connected to the grid. It's a very good source of energy, but it's also expensive. And if we can get people grid connected and get the economies of a large grid, um, it'll be a lot more affordable than the energy is today. And there'll be a lot more of it to allow people to grow. You called it realism. I think that's a good word. We tend to come at this problem a little bit more with analysis and a lot of engineers and people who've done real energy project development around the world. So have a little bit better sense than a lot of campaigners about what's actually required to deliver energy to the ground and to do it in a way that doesn't have emissions. And grid modernization is something that you focused on. Can you just go into some of the different alternative energy, advanced nuclear, geothermal, hydrogen, solar? Let's start with renewables because there's a lot of exciting stuff going on there. We are looking at a whole generation of additional solar resources that could have much higher efficiency. So there's the whole body research going on in that space and promising still a lot of it's still lab scale but advanced materials, advanced electronics, all of that. Wind energy, some great developments going offshore, particularly floating offshore. Wind could be a huge resource. And again, initially quite expensive, but we're beginning to see Europe deploy floating offshore in the deep offshore where you're talking about you know, several hundred meters or even a thousand meters depth. And you're really talking at that point about not anchoring things to the seabed floor. That technology is very rapidly advancing. Energy storage is, there's a, just a lot of money going into that space. Energy storage is very important because wind and solar fluctuate, not just by day, but by multiple days and sometimes weeks and months. If you're going to go very heavily on solar and wind, how do you balance the times when neither of them are available? What a lot of companies are working on the storage options that would fill multiple days or even weeks of low wind and sun. Another area that we focus on is super hot rock geothermal, which is basically just a way to get a lot more thermal energy out of the earth. Today, when we talk about geothermal energy, we're really talking about pools of hot water that are pretty close to the earth's surface. And there just aren't many of them. We all know about the iconic geothermal in Yellowstone National Park in the US. This technology, super hot rock, actually goes into the dry rock that's more like two to three to seven miles into the earth where you've got 400, 700 degrees Celsius rock. And what one would do is basically create an artificial geothermal pool by injecting water into rock, which would heat very rapidly and turn into a supercritical fluid that can then be piped back up through another pipe to the earth's surface. And uh, all the really costs is the drilling. There are a lot of technological issues there. People are experimenting with different kinds of drills. The advantage of that technology is that it's everywhere on the earth. There's almost nowhere on the earth that if you drill down a few miles, you're not going to hit hot, dry rock. 
very interesting technology because not only is it everywhere, it could be relatively cheap and it's 24 7, 365. So you don't really have to worry about sun or wind. It's always there. So you could use storage to complement it, but, or you could use it to create hydrogen using the energy to create. And then advanced nuclear is interesting. Let's talk about fission first, which is the nuclear that we know. Nuclear has proven in the past for many countries like France and Sweden and Belgium to provide a very significant share of energy at low carbon. And in fact, initially, France, when it deployed its nuclear plants in the 1970s, not for climate reasons, but just to get France off expensive oil, within a space of 20 years, France had gone from no zero carbon energy to 70% or 75% zero carbon energy. So we've shown in the past that that technology can scale. We can get into reasons or discussion about why it's not scaling today. I think it has to do in a nutshell with the fact that we never really designed an industry that could build multiple repeated versions of the same design. And even France lost its way on that. It was doing a really good job of building inexpensively and bringing costs down. But then as, and this was true in South Korea, uh, as well as in Japan, that as you got out of a standardized product and in more into bespoke or customized plants, costs went up. We can reverse that. We can go back and to the way we used to do it. But right now, nuclear is a promising option that is not being deployed because the fundamental model that we have of deploying it is deficient. Then the third category of things that are developing right now are what we call carbon management strategies. For example, you could burn natural gas in a power plant and then extract the carbon from the smokestack, put the carbon underground, or you could separate the carbon prior to the combustion process and just have basically a hydrogen fuel going into the combustor. So this is a way of continuing to use natural gas without having any carbon emissions or any other emissions, because if you have to scrub the carbon, you have to scrub everything else. So there's just tons of options out there. And we haven't even talked about nuclear fusion, which people I'm sure have been following technology that everyone jokes that it's always 30 years away. What's different about today is that there is a lot of private investment going into that space right now. It used to be a government research project, but now billions and billions of dollars are going into developing fusion machines. So the fusion process, it's very different from splitting atoms. It's fusing atoms. It has a very different waste safety profile, which is probably likely much more manageable than our existing nuclear fission technology. And then there are many different flavors of fission. So one of the things that I find heartening about the current situation, and the reason I'm not a pessimist about solving this problem, is that there is so much human ingenuity going into solving this problem right now. When I started my career 40 years ago, first of all, I'm an advocate, I'm not a scientist, but there were maybe on the planet, maybe there were 100 people working on this issue. And there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, working on it just in the advocacy and policy space now. And then you look at all the people, the scientists and the engineers and the investors and the business people who are trying to create these new machines and bring down the cost. And you're talking tens of millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of people. And the annual spend on clean energy globally is somewhere in the range right now, I believe, of about 400 billion a year. We're getting up there in terms of social effort. And it's hard to believe that with all these options coming onto the scene that we won't solve or get very close to solving this problem during this century and really essentially having a carbon-free energy system. We can talk about all the roadblocks and all that has to happen, but conceptually, we're kind of there. I mean, we know what we have to do and we have a sense of the options. And our philosophy, which makes us a little different from other environmental organizations that work on this, 
is we think you ought to be pursuing all of those options because you don't know which are going to work out. Maybe we get to 100% wind and solar at some point. I would love it if that were the case, but maybe we don't. And we can talk about some of the roadblocks that would suggest maybe it's good to have a couple other options to complement that. This question of a modern energy system that's zero carbon seems to be well within human reach. That's what we do, and that's what makes us optimistic. We just believe in creating options. A lot of folks are much more confident than we are that, for example, wind and solar will solve all of the problems, and we'll do it in a timely way. Our view is kind of agnostic on that. Maybe it will, but we don't want to bet the planet that it will. It is very exciting because we are living through this kind of energy renaissance and it's a matter of just scaling up and doing it within the time that we have. It's nice to see the way cities are moving forward. It's hard to move a huge country like America all at once, but the way cities are really driving a lot of this change. You mentioned the IPCC and they see cities as being the living labs and are really like the main drivers of creativity and innovation, consuming 75% of the world's natural resources and over 70% of global carbon dioxide emissions. But a lot of us living in cities were wondering, what is the future of transportation, food, resource and waste management? What are these things going to look like? So as you look ahead, how do you see them transforming and driving that change? So we specialize in the large mega systems. We do less ground level work in terms of, for example, building you know city planning to minimize carbon footprint. There's great work going on there and there's living labs everywhere on this. The food system, of course, is by some accounts responsible for something like 25, 30% of the problem, depending on which pollutant you're counting, whether you include methane. We don't do a lot of work on that. Um, again. But it's all part of the same kind of mindset, I would say, of trying to live lighter on the planet. We all know that cities are much lower energy consumers per capita. That is to say, city dwellers use much less energy than other people because of the density of housing, the transport is easier. So densification of human development is a huge climate benefit and making cities more attractive and livable is a really critical part of the equation. Getting the food system to adopt a lower carb methodologies is also a good contributor. Let's take Lagos, Nigeria. So we can work on making that a more livable city, reducing the pollution burden, for example, electrifying vehicles within the city, a huge step forward in terms of lowering. But basic in terms of producing the electricity, we then have the problem of what's the system that delivers that electricity to run the vehicles or run the buildings. And so we tend to focus a little bit upstream on that set of questions. And also within the city, electrification may not be the only option for heavy freight coming in and out of the city. It may be some kind of hydrogen or ammonia fueled vehicles, but it's really remarkable. If you look at programs right now in universities, engineering programs, civil engineering or chemical, mechanical, electrical, or you look at city planning departments around the world, you open any catalog of any major university, and within all those disciplines, there's going to be a major climate focus. It's like a unifying theme. So what I'm seeing is young people coming out of their training with a sense that their mission within those areas is partly to provide the energy services or the systems or the industry's uh, product, but there's just no separating that in their minds from the need to control emissions on the planet and to get to a more livable climate. So what I'm seeing is this massive amount of social energy and intellectual energy, but it's in multiple scales, as you point out, Mia. there's city design, there's the kind of transportation systems that we construct and operate. And then there's the mega systems of electricity production and fuel production in which they're embedded and the food system that serves the cities. And all of that kind of works together, but directionally, we're going right. And then the question that haunts me is, 
for the mega cities of the developing world, how much can we direct that development in a way that's much more compatible with climate and then the systems that serve those cities? And I don't think anyone, including us, have any answers to that. We have a project in Africa that's beginning to start to try and have dialogue around that. But for example, the idea that the answer to Africa's energy problem is just to do decentralized solar in villages. That may be a great solution for villages, but we're expecting well over half of Africa's population will be in cities by 2035. So what do we do instead? Big questions. You mentioned methane there, and you're involved in influencing public policy and energizing funding directed towards plugging methane leaks. It must be unsettling for you to see. The, I saw the report in The Guardian yesterday, which revealed that there are a thousand super emitting methane leaks that were in 2022 triggering climate tipping points. So as much as we're advancing, we have to plug this in some ways. And as you mentioned, also, that's agriculture as well with animals. So it's coming from different sources, but it's just incredible to take that in. We started working on methane emissions, but methane as a warming agent on the planet is maybe between 20 and maybe 50 times a lot worse than carbon per molecule or per unit. And it's also really a relatively easy thing to control. Carbon dioxide is inherently bound up with fossil fuel use. So to the extent that we don't have carbon capture, we're going to have carbon associated with fossil fuel use. Not necessarily true with methane. So when we pump oil and gas out of the ground, methane can be emitted from these wells if it's not properly controlled. But the controls are there. This is completely commercial technology. And it's just a matter of really getting people to adopt it or requiring that they adopt it. And we are making progress on this a vast number of companies around the world have committed and countries have committed to reducing methane emissions to near zero oil and gas, as you say, waste landfills and agriculture, and particularly meat consumption cows are a big source of methane. And there's a lot of interesting work going on in dietary modifications and things like that. This raises a larger point that even as we move to advanced technology, there's still this problem that 80% of the world's energy today is coming from fossil fuels, from oil, gas, and coal. So what do you do in the meantime? Because every molecule we put into the atmosphere of carbon is going to be around for another 50, 100, several hundred years. The warming impact will be with us. So turning down the spigot, so to speak, really quickly is also important. The long range is important, but what do we do in the meantime while we're still very fossil fuel dependent? So eliminating methane is one big thing we can do. It's an easy lift relative to everything else. So let's just do it. And then capturing as much carbon as we can while we're developing the renewable strategies. In the meantime, let's take the industrial facilities that are the big emitters, the steel plants, the cement plants, plastics plants. Let's put some carbon capture on the back end where we can. It's not cheap, but it is doable and it's doable fairly quickly. It's a hard thing for people to accept that you have to be doing some damage control even as you're working on the long-term solutions, but I'm afraid that it's a complex and big problem. So we have to think of it as first aid before you do the surgery. We have to stop the blood from flowing first and then we can get the patient into the operating room and really do the deep work we need to do. So that's where I think we're at for the next couple decades. But there's this interim problem of plugging the leaks, as you called it. You talked a little bit about electric cars a little while ago. I've seen a lot of discourse about electric cars and I know that they don't emit carbon, but they do have lithium batteries, which take eons to biodegrade. So what would your thoughts be on electric car use weighing the no carbon emissions versus the non-biodegradable batteries? Do you think electric yeah. cars are worth it? 
So there are no easy answers here. They're just trade-offs and everything has trade-offs. Electric cars are a perfect example of where we have a supply chain, we have critical materials, rare earths that cause environmental damage when they're mined and when they're processed and at the end of their life cycle. What do you do with them? Now, I think those are problems that can be mitigated. They can't be completely solved. All mining is destructive, right? But the question is, what are the advantages of having a zero carbon vehicle ultimately? Because right now, an electric car is not a zero carbon vehicle because the grids aren't zero carbon. But you ask a great question. The, some of the big questions about the energy transition for electric vehicles or even the amount of cement and steel that goes into large scale wind turbines and some of the rare earths and critical minerals that are used there nuclear life cycle, mining uranium, there's waste on the back end, not a lot of it, but it is something that has to be carefully managed. And if we look at any kind of fossil fuel use, there's going to be probably some residual carbon emissions. So you end up looking at the entire supply chain or the life cycle, as it's called. So I think that my answer to you about EVs is, yeah, I think on balance, they're a good bet because as I've researched this to the extent I've been able to at our organization, it does appear that there, there may be substitute materials like anything as something becomes more expensive and lithium is very expensive now, you will have technological alternatives, synthetic alternatives that will develop. I can't speak to the specifics, but it's highly likely that we'll figure out how to do some of these things without drawing on some of these rare materials. As far as the life cycle of batteries, I think people are really beginning to invest heavily in recycling on the back end. On the mining end, a lot of people are beginning to think about and work on how do we absolutely minimize the environmental damage footprint of the mining of these critical minerals. At Cleaner Task Force, we're involved in trying to get the uranium supply chain and the mining end of that in a better place than it is today. There have been some horrible abuses in the past that absolutely are unacceptable if we're going to use uranium at any scale in the future, certainly expand it. So I think we should proceed on all of these things because everything has a trade-off. There's no such thing as completely clean energy. We use that term a lot, but it's not really true. We have low carbon energy, lower carbon energy, but any kind of industrial system has requirements for materials and processing, and it's nothing's completely natural in the industrial world. If we can electrify transportation, I think we can clean up the grid and then I think we can deal with these life cycle issues in a way that's responsible, but it'll never be zero. That's impossible. I think we'd make a huge amount of progress on the climate problem if we could get people to think in these kind of multi-dimensions, like it's not this or that. Everything's complex. And this idea that we're just going to flip a switch and if we just elect the right politicians, this is all going to turn around overnight is, I think, unfortunately, it's a bit of a barrier to progress. And I think if we can get people to think about trade-offs and the need to stage some of these developments and not solve everything at once, I think we'll make a lot more progress than we're able to. We're kind of people are choosing sides over technologies or saying, you know, communities are saying wind and solar is completely unacceptable because we're a rural community, don't want it. Or people who say nuclear power plants are unacceptable because they have waste on the back end. These are extreme positions that tend to get taken. And if we can break that down and get a dialogue around the complexity, I think we'd make a lot more progress. Do you think making sustainability and sustainable technology easier to understand for most people would facilitate the dialogue it would come from businesses, like changing the business mindset, public policy, corporate versus the government. What are your thoughts on that? We work on all of that. I mean, it's all of the above. It's business, it's media, it's universities, it's the way politicians talk about things. And by the way, Biden has been a great messenger on this, right? I mean, he's been sort of 
we really need to solve this problem and it's super complex and we're going to go at it from all directions at once. And you know, not everyone has agreed with that, but the fact that he's been consistent with that message, I think has had a huge impact on the legislation that got passed in the United States last year, where it's the biggest expenditure on clean energy or zero carbon energy ever in the world, anywhere. We're really talking with the three bills that got passed over the last two years, something like a trillion dollars in government money, that's going to leverage trillions more. So I think in terms of understanding what does sustainable mean, it's actually kind of a good term because in a way, sustainability doesn't imply no impact or an absolute solution. It's what's manageable. And I think the more that we have messaging by the media and social media, of course, is rising in importance, but it's all about how you think about this problem and how do you talk about it. I work on nuclear. It's not the only thing I do, but I'm going to use it as an example. So the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant in California is the largest source of energy electricity in, in the state of California. It's the largest source of zero carbon energy. It was going to shut down if nothing was done. We worked on a campaign to mobilize public opinion to keep it open because at least until we have 100% wind and solar, taking it offline would mean more fossil fuel consumption. And we went into that campaign thinking there's no way we're going to win this campaign because California is so anti-nuclear. But as we did the polling, when we used the governor's own pollsters, we learned that actually 60% of the state population supported keeping nuclear open. And that was because it was in the news. People understand climate as the polls asked them, do you understand that this is a zero carbon source? So even in a state that is seen as having a narrow focus on solutions for sustainability, you get this complexity of public understanding, which is encouraging. I think it was an interesting example because more of this is discussed in the media and people understand that everything's a trade-off. Those are not magic solutions that solve things overnight. I think it's all of the things that you mentioned. It's talking about things in a different way, politicians talking about things in a different way, media, and then the, the educational institutions taking this on in a more nuanced way. This discussion is a lot more sophisticated than it was, I would say, even three years ago. And you had technology camps that were opposing each other. And then I think what we found with the passage of the recent legislation in the U.S. and then what Europe is doing at the same time, we see a convergence of, holy cow, this is a huge problem. We got to go figure out how to solve it and just get a lot more pragmatic. Me and my peers kind of just feel helpless in a lot of this because the climate crisis, there's so much to do and we can do so little. So what would your advice be to young people like myself? What can we do and what should we do to help move this along? I'm really disheartened. I understand why people talk about the climate emergency or the climate crisis and that if we don't solve this problem in two years, we're all dead. I understand the reason why campaigners take that approach. I don't think the science really supports this idea that there's some magical cutoff. We just have to move as fast as possible. And I'm worried that young people, I have kids who are in their late 20s who have this kind of thing like, we're screwed, dad, right? I mean, we're done. And I'm like, no way. It took us 200 years to get to this point. And there's a lot of inertia built into the system. But all, on the other hand, you know, look, look at France. It decarbonized power grid in 20 years. France has one of the lowest carbon emitting energy systems in the world. That happened in two decades. And look at solar and wind. It was a joke 20 years ago. It was like, you're kidding me? These things are like hobby horses. Today, at least without considering the storage and all that, it's a very cheap energy source. And that happened very rapidly. Now it's 7% of global energy. We need to get it much higher. But things can happen very rapidly. And you get these tipping points in climate. You also get tipping points in technology where something moves along pretty slowly and then it gets really cheap and then it just takes off. Unfortunately, that happened to natural gas in the U.S. It helped us retire a lot of coal plants, but 
it was very expensive. And then people started fracking and whatever you think about fracking, it was a technological development that kind of came out of the blue. And then all of a sudden gas got really cheap and it started displacing coal. And I'm not suggesting that's the way to go, but it's an example of how sort of small things can happen in technology that result in massive increases. I have an example at the turn of the last century, there were these newspaper stories about how New York City was going to drown in horse manure because there were so many horses in the population and had grown so much. And it was like, oh my God, this is going to be a public health emergency. And then the automobile came along and the horses vanished within a space of 20 years. Now they created their own environmental problem, but it wasn't that problem. And so I would say the thing that's bad about technology is that it can move very fast. The good thing about technology is it can move very fast. And so it, my advice would be, if you're interested in this topic, if you have a mathematical, scientific, or business orientation, or you just like solving problems, you're that kind of person, get trained to really be part of the technological business revolution that's going on right now and join up with companies that are doing clean energy work or work for an electric utility that's got the right commitment. If you're a policy person who doesn't like mucking around with numbers, then train yourself to understand the complexities of this and go into government or work in non-governmental organizations like mine and bring your brain to the table. If you're a campaigner, if you just like organizing, then bring some of that to the table. So there are many ways that you can move forward, but I think that the notion that we're stuck with this problem forever or that we're doomed, it's not productive. I don't think it's true either. I'm very optimistic if you think about technological progress in the last hundred years. Okay, maybe we don't solve this problem in 25 or 30 years. I think we solve it in 60. It's just things are moving too fast. I'm seeing too many good things happening and too much money going into this and too many brains not to believe that we're going to make a significant amount of progress. So yeah, don't despair. I, I feel like there should be an antidepressant pill just for this problem of climate depression. It's really destructive. Yes, be concerned, be attentive, be alarmed. But don't be in despair or depressed or paralyzed. There's just lots of opportunity out there. Think about it from a positive standpoint. What's your skill set? What do you like to do? I mean, that's actually really important. Do you like to mess around with spreadsheets? Do you like tinkering with metal? Do you like advocating before public bodies? There's just a place for everyone in this. And it's a great career opportunity. You will not go unemployed if you're working on clean energy, okay? Or clean meat, low carbon meat, or low carbon agriculture. Just the amount of money and effort that's pouring into this, it's just skyrocketing, it's exponential. So it's a very solid career path. Whereas when I was coming up, my father, who was a civil engineer said, are you really sure you wanna go into environmental work? That doesn't seem to pay very well. Now all these fields pay quite well. And there's actually a talent war. The companies I talk to just can't get enough good people right now. And salaries are getting bid up and headhunters are out there. Flip this around and say, the crisis is an opportunity to really make an impact on the world. So what can we as the listeners learn from Armin Cohen's insight? First of all, don't despair. Climate anxiety and climate depression are very real things and they're hard to deal with, but you won't be of any use in the fight against climate change if you've already given up. It's so common to get bogged down from the news and media pushing stories upon stories on us about the destruction of climate change, carbon emissions, the impending doom of the planet. But start to do your own research. Find out about the new technology that exists. Find out about the new technology that's being created to help combat this issue. There's so much new technology that's already been created to combat this issue that, as Armin said, it's almost impossible that we will not solve this crisis. Second, don't be so hard on yourself. I keep seeing that 
the little things that you do, like eating organic or recycling. I keep seeing the media push this narrative that they matter and they're the only things that matter. If you are an imperfect sustainability advocate, then you're not an advocate at all. And I'm here to tell you that that's just not true. These big companies are pushing this narrative because they want to shift the blame of emissions somewhere other than themselves. The Carbon Majors report states that 100 of the world's companies are responsible for 71% of the world's emissions. Systemic change doesn't only lie in whether you choose to eat beef this week, but it also lies on changing these business models. And the easiest way to do that is to use technology that's already been created and make it easier to access and easier to attain. Keep making the small changes in your own life, but don't forget to fight for the large-scale changes at the same time. Now, back to the interview. I'm just wondering, because you deal with government or industry, you're bringing together, it's about how you frame it. So I wonder how you do work with that and you frame it in such a way that they see the opportunities. As you mentioned, the Inflation Reduction Act and different ways that it, the people respond and that they listen and they understand how they're a part of it. Yeah, I, I think it's a matter of what audience you're talking to. What do they care about? You have to meet people where they are. That's the essence of advocacy or any effective communication, right? We have to understand the listener. Our approach at the Clean Air Task Force is to think about what is the coalition you need to move, move change and what motivates people to join that coalition. And for businesses, the argument is if you support this policy, you actually have a future that's actually quite bright. So you can even talk to the fossil fuel industry and say, you really need to be on board methane control and management. And by the way, you really need to be at carbon capture. And you really ought to think about diversifying into other lower carbon energy because that's your economic future. And by the way, if we work together on these policies, maybe there's a glide path for you that remains profitable or maybe not. But that's a different story than we're out to kill you and we just want you to go away. That's a messaging challenge, right? Actually, it's more than a messaging challenge. It's how do you actually enlist people to use their, their brains in a good way? But it's also messaging. It's how can that be heard? For politicians, it's about what do I care about as a congressman or senator or as a member of parliament? I care about, do we have an economy? Do we have energy security? Do we have a good environment? Unfortunately, environment is usually number seven or eight on voters' minds until something really bad happens. But you appeal, and I think this has been the genius of the Inflation Reduction Act and European Green Deal and its successors, is to say, this is about a change in a industrial model and there's a whole lot of upside in the advanced technology. And there are jobs and there is a industrial infrastructure that can be changed. And we don't have to abandon the economy to do this. Those are two really important allies, government and business. And then for the general public and for media, I think the way that we message is frankly just trying to it's what we all talked about at the beginning of the hour, which is trying to get the people who are the the thought leaders in society to understand for this problem at a greater level of complexity than is understood. And so we spend a lot of time at the Clean Air Task Force just running people through analysis and getting information out to them as neutrally as possible. Every summer we run with the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, a summer course for legislators and environmental advocates on nuclear energy. And it's presented as just, here's what it is, here's how it works, here are its problems, here are its challenges, here are some possible solutions. It's not pushing an advocacy agenda, it's just getting information out and about what could be its advantages and also what's needed to compensate for its disadvantages. And so that's just pure education. That's a whole different line of activity. 
So we do a lot of different things. Some of it's education, some of it's advocacy, some of it's coalition building, and that's how anything gets done, right? And I think things are moving in the right direction. We're beginning to get more environmentalists aligned with business, aligned with government on some of these strategic challenges. It's maybe not the biggest problem the world's ever faced, but it's pretty close. And so any of us who think we have a solution in a box are losing our sense of perspective. So we try and bring some of that perspective to the table. Absolutely. And just quickly in closing, why we're doing this for the next generation and for our families, for the future of this planet, as you think about the beauty and wonder of the natural world that you want to protect and preserve for the next generation. My inspiration for all of my environmental work, I was fortunate enough to grow up in the Northeast United States. And my family had a small house on the ocean, a cottage that when I was two or three years old, and I spent most of my summers there. And the beauty of the ocean is what inspired me. And then I saw that sewage was coming out of Philadelphia into the Delaware coast, and I was unable to swim in the ocean many days. And my father was a civil engineer, and I asked him what that was all about. And he explained patiently that Philadelphia was not scrubbing its sewage. And so that's why I couldn't swim in the ocean. And as a child, that was a very disturbing thing. And in some ways, that was the thing that motivated me to get involved in environmental work, because he also explained that there were pretty simple solutions to that. They were well known. My father started his career as a sewer engineer, so he knew the technology. He said, it's just a matter of getting people to do it and problem solved. And now problem is solved. You know, it took 20 or 30 years to solve it. So I think that at the end of the day, when we think about climate, the climate problem, we have to keep coming back to what it is we're trying to protect. And there are going to be trade-offs, but it's got to be nature that inspires us in our sense of obligation to our fellow human beings, but also a sense that the natural world will go on without us. If we extinguish our species, the earth would just rebalance its systems and the carbon eventually would be scrubbed out. But I think the beauty of it is that if we can find out a way to coexist with nature in a way that we don't destroy the atmosphere, I find human development and human achievement and artistic expression, very inspiring too, as beautiful as nature. So I think we can have both. We just have to be smart. And I know we've only touched the tip of the iceberg in terms of the important work that you do. Thank you, Armand Cohen and the Clean Air Task Force for all the great work you do, your pragmatic bipartisan approach enabling the adoption of decarbonized technologies, impacting public policy to spur individual and collective change, to move us from inertia to action and create a better future for all. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. Wow. And thank you. It's a privilege and a lot of fun to talk. And Bianca, don't despair. Make sure your generation is engaged in a constructive, positive way. It's going to work out. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Bianca Weber with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this episode was Bianca Weber. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.